At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Speaking of patience, it required a lot of patience, waiting in line, waiting our turn, until finally, finally we get to the front of the line. How many have waited in line at a theme park like Disney? They're eternal, but the wait was worth it for Disney King, Animal Kingdom ride Flight of Avatar. Anybody been on Flight of Avatar before? Let me see, okay, a few people, all right. Well, I, I might have a spoiler alert for you. I don't know how you felt about the movie, 2009 I think it came out, but the Disney magic was true to form. It made it something spectacular. And you experience soaring through this 3D world. So it's very immersive because you've got 3D glasses on. You're soaring over this beautiful landscape. You're flying over rushing waters. You're seeing all these creatures, all these things. It's a visual feast for the eyes, but it's actually even more than that. The thing that you're actually seated on simulates the breathing of the creature that you're riding on. So you feel the thing moving. You feel it vibrate. You hear sounds all around you, like crashing waves, like, like you're experiencing flying over the, over the ocean, and not just hearing, not just seeing, not just feeling, but, but it's like water, mist, splashing on you when the waves come up. I mean, it is like full sensory experience. It is amazing and awesome. Now, my mom was already in a happy place because this Nana had her dream come true of taking her kids and her grandkids to Disney. She'd been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for our kids, who are the youngest, uh, to get old enough that they could enjoy this. And so she's already in her happy place, sitting next to me on her little thing, experiencing this. And you know there's people who talk in movies? <laughs> well, that was her. Because of the thrill of her being at Disney and the thrill of the ride, she kept exclaiming out loud the whole time, oh, it's so beautiful. Like, I mean, this, this whole, all these people, dozens of people here, and she's just crying out, it's beautiful. And it made me smile the whole time because she thought it was so beautiful from her vantage point. It was immersive, it was sensory, it was beautiful, it was really incredible, but it does not hold a candle to what is coming in Revelation for us, God's people, that we're going to jump into today. It's amazing. It's amazing. So buckle up on your, your seats here. We've been working through Revelation. We've been looking at the last chapters of what is to come, all things new, and honestly, I wish we could spend all summer in the whole book of Revelation because there's so much good stuff in there to behold. And you know, that's one of the themes of Revelation, behold, pay attention. That's one of the key themes that we're supposed to notice. The Apostle John is writing to seven churches. He's writing to them. He's writing for the benefit of the church across the ages. That's us. And he wants his readers to behold, to pay attention. And he uses all sorts of means. Do you realize how much the senses are part of Revelation? Consider this. There's sound. 
Jesus is saying, he who has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's thunder. There's loud worship, right? All this noise that's happening in heaven. There's sight. So John is writing down, trying to describe using words what he's what he's seeing, he sees angels and beasts and books and fantastic cities that are spectacular and sparkly and there's numbers and there's all of these things that he is seeing. There's smell. You ever see that in there? I have to believe that the, fra- that the incense that was burning in the throne room would have an aroma, that would have a fragrance, that would have a fragrance for the people in heaven. It's tangible. He is referencing actual things, real fire that comes down from heaven, a real throne, real heavenly and human beings in heaven around God's throne, a real book of life. There's also emotion. You know, John weeps at one point. Multiple people fall down just to overcome at the one seated on the throne, that they just fall down. There is emotion in their passionate worship of God but it also engages the mind. There's a mental component to this because the readers are faced with a decision. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? Are you on the side of the devil, the beast, the false prophet, or are you on the side of Jesus Christ, the King? So yes, Revelation is very sensory if you pay attention to it. It's also highly significant. There are many things to study more in depth, to understand about what's to come, but not necessarily from a a perspective of, let me pick out, let me assign a name or a nation and the right chronology and a timeline so that I can figure out everything that's coming. I don't think that's John's purpose in recording this. Rather, we're to pay attention to its inner meaning, to its meaning. What is it that God is wanting human beings to know about himself and his plan. I love how Eugene Peterson wrote about Revelation. It is not prediction, but perception. It is, in short, about God as he is right now. It rips the veil off our vision and lets us see what is taking place. And John so wants the church to know what God is doing to behold, to pay attention, to understand, not to be ignorant or irresponsible. He's writing this last book of Scripture, which is the culmination of God's story, his story, his story. In the pages of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we can track God's story of Eden place of perfection to a renewed Eden. Now, why a renewed Eden? Why do we need a new Eden? Well, because of sin, right? Sin entered the world. With it, it brought decay, discord, death, all these terrible things. And so God promised, hey, it's not always going to be this way. That was the, the promise from the very beginning. And the unpacking throughout Scripture of, well, what's his plan of provision? How does he make a way? How does he make all things new? Well, the narrative in summary is that broken, lost, rebellious people against the reign and the rule of God, that's us before Christ, right? Until God intervenes 
and he provides rescue. And through salvation, he begins to change people. He changes their heart, and he forms them into his people, the redeemed people of God, the church. And always, the, God, the, the Bible is pointing to how will God make all things new? What, what is he doing? And that is with the culmination here, Revelation 21, that, and these, these chapters, we're seeing the culmination of God's history, of God's plan. And so I praise God for the gift of revelation from uh, the Holy Spirit to Pastor John the Apostle to the churches and then for our benefit and our strengthening. And as we approach 21, what is the headline? What's the news for us? What, what, what are we supposed to see? Well, John is declaring very loud, hey, there's good news. Pay attention. See what God is doing. He is making all things new. And let me tell you about it. That's what he wants us to see. You remember two weeks ago, Revelation 20? Whew, that was a heavy one. It was a heavy one. To today's text from Revelation 20, there's a dramatic shift from bad to good. God brings about the destruction of evil. Remember, that was death. That was the devil. That was sin. All of that stuff is taken care of. Revelation 20, we saw that. And here we are in 21, and now there is this goodness that's going to be established for eternity. Only goodness that we will know. This is good news, amen? amen? Yeah, talk back to me. It's good news. But not just for us to say like, oh, yeah, amen, yeah, flippantly acknowledge it and then go about my day. Remember, it's written for a purpose. John's goal is that we would be different, that we would know why does this matter? What does the Christian need to know about what's coming that will help them now? And so let's see. Let's see. First is a call to a new reality. Look at verse 1. Then I saw, hey, there's sensory language again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, so what's he mean by a new heaven and a new earth? What is this vision about? Fulfillment. That's what he's getting at. As we approach the final page or two, however your Bible is arranged, there's, it's the final page or two of Scripture. This is what the whole thing has been building up to, where God's people are going to enjoy victory and experience their deepest longings of God's presence. And so the, the description, new heaven and a new earth, the former one passing away, he's starting to do it, folks. This is a fulfillment of a, of a prophecy from the Old Testament. Corey read for us Isaiah 65 in our call to worship. Isaiah repeats it in chapter 66, God's promise for a new heaven and a new earth. The apostle Peter picks up on it, 2 Peter uh, 3.13, I think it is, where he says that according to his promise, we're waiting. We're waiting for this new heaven and a new earth where righteousness reigns. The only reason God made a promise for a new heaven and a new earth is because righteousness wasn't reigning, because sin was introduced. If God's good world, very good creation, as he called it, had never been spoiled by sin, he wouldn't have had to make a promise to make a new heaven and a new earth. But Romans 8.21 calls uh, earth creation itself in bondage. Everything around us experiences being in bondage to sin. Creation is groaning. We experience suffering and disappointment and pain, right? We live it. The earth lives it as well. But the good news of Jesus, like a bright light in a dark room, 
is that there's a new reality coming because of what God has done and what he is doing and because of what human beings get to experience. He rescues us from bondage. He sets us free to a new life in him. Salvation's end goal, friends, isn't just that someday we don't have to go to hell, we get to be reunited with some family who are already in heaven, and we're just going to somehow spiritually live someplace that's far away. We're just going to fly away. That's not the end goal of salvation. Scripture has always been pointing to and building to this all-encompassing, comprehensive plan of restoration. And we see the picture of it first in the human heart and then experienced in the new creation. On Memorial Day, my family was sitting around on lunchtime on our back deck, and that was the one-year anniversary of my son, of my daughter's spiritual birthday. And so we were remembering from a year ago, look at what God did, affirming some things of growth that we had seen in her life. And uh, so all four of us are sitting there. And at some point, our uh, five-year-old, soon-to-be six-year-old Jack started asking some questions. And, and he's been wondering, am I in God's family? And Allie and I have seen bits and pieces of you know, okay, has God changed his heart? Is he saved? Did you... So we're having uh, a conversation where we're prompting some questions. And he's, uh, his sister's trying to interrupt. It's like, this is not your time. Be quiet. <laughs> so, Jack, tell us, what, what is it that you believe about Jesus? And so we're, we're interacting with him. We're dialoguing with him. And in a beautiful act of God's mercy and grace and such a gift to us as parents, we got to affirm Jack's faith, profession of faith in Jesus that day. What a good day for Memorial Day. They share a spiritual birthday. I mean, just an incredible day for us as a family to see that. And then he went inside, and then he came back a few minutes later, and he said, hey, does this mean I have a new heart? And we're like, what? Like, what the? Uh, maybe we've talked about that before, but, you know, the things kids pick up on. And we said, yeah, buddy, yeah, Scripture, scripture says that you have a, 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 not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And like a five-year-old, he said, well, what's God do with my old one? <laughs> I love it. And you know what? You know how he answered it? A few weeks before in our kids' ministry, his small group leader used an illustration of a really dirty penny. Do you know what happens to a really dirty penny when you put hot sauce on it? It cleans it up. And so there's this illustration from kids' ministry that then we're bringing back to him to say, nobody, God doesn't throw out your old heart. He changes it. He cleans it up. It becomes a heart of flesh. And that's what God does with your heart. Curious to think about what God does with the world then, his creation. Is it new as in Jesus is going to blow this thing up in the end and he's going to start from scratch? Is it that? Is that what new means? I don't think so from the text and from the original language. New seems to indicate a new world, but not newness of origin. So think about it for a second. Genesis 1, God creates out of nothing. So it is new in its origin, this creation that he called good. 
But here in the text, in the original language, it's not newness of origin, but Scripture seems to be pointing to renovation, transformation of what was rather than just we're going to throw it out. Some of you live for the dream cruise, right? You see these beautiful cars riding down Woodward. Well, it's because somebody has a lot of money and a lot of time and love to say that is a classic car that, it, that could be something beautiful again. And they invest all that stuff into it, and all of a sudden, this beautiful car is restored beyond its former glory. That's a kind of a simple, maybe a crude way uh, to, to describe it, but, but I think that's the, that's the picture here of what the new creation that God is going to institute. And so therefore, if all of creation, if all of this that we're living in right now isn't temporary, if it's not just worthless, it should impact some things of how we live and act, right? So we're to continue the Genesis creation mandate, be good stewards of my creation, right? I've set mankind over creation, so we're to steward it well. This body someday will break down and decay in the ground, in a, uh, you know, in a, in a casket. So it, it'll be, it'll be uh, my, my physical body will be decaying. And yet, Scripture says here, not here in Revelation, but in the New Testament, Scripture says, you still are to use your body for worship, even though someday it's going to be in the ground, God is going to resurrect our bodies. There's going to be a newness of our resurrection, much like there was for Jesus. When Jesus was resurrected, he didn't lose his identity. It was a, a new glorified body. But so therein, we have some pictures here. We have pictures of what God is going to do. And so therefore, we're to live as his people in this world because it matters, like it, it matters one million years from right now, how we live today, how we care for God's creation today, how we push back against injustice and, and oppression in our world. You know what's encouraging to see as we look here in the text? He talks about the sea being no more. I personally like water, I like the ocean, I like the sea. But that's not what he's talking about here. Do you know that in Scripture, the sea is a personification of evil? The sea is hostile. If you look throughout Revelation, it's the source of evil. Beasts and things come out of the sea. It is hostile. It is uncontrollable. And so this idea of the sea being no more means evil is no more. It's gone. It's done away with. Now, we know as much as we work in this life to bring about the good of society, to push back darkness. We know that it won't be fully dealt with until this time of Revelation 20 and 21. But still, God calls us to push back against the darkness. And one of the ways we do that is by loving Jesus and loving the people of the world that Jesus died for. Do we love the world like God loves the world? Because I believe God intends to use our lives, our vocations, our recreation, our wherever we are, to be part of the process to change people's lives, to have an opportunity to speak truth that sets us free. Because somebody did that in our life. Somebody helped us to see the truth, and the Holy Spirit confirmed it in us, and we were saved. 
And I think he wants it, that to be our collective calling as a church and our individual calling, which is why Evelyn talked about our Reach the World campaign. So I'm personally not going to go to Nepal, but we have Carol Effersey from our church who's going to go and spend a couple of weeks with our global partner in Nepal. And so it gives me the opportunity to not only support Carol as she goes on the other side of the world, but this whole Reach the World campaign is a way for us to say, well, you know what, God? You have blessed us with much. So open hands, here you go. There are people doing good gospel work to push back the evil of the world. And so that's what we're about as a church. That's what we're about as people. John then moves on in verse 2, and he's using three different phrases that, that refer to one thing. He talks about the holy city, New Jerusalem, and then there's a description of a bride. And do you know that it all refers to us, the church, the people of God across all time and place, the church. Now, in Revelation, we see a couple of cities that are juxtaposed against each other. We have Jerusalem here. Earlier, we've seen Babylon. Babylon, the symbol, the, the, the picture of um, just the destruction and, and the darkness and evil, all the symbols of the world. And then you've got Jerusalem, which is a picture of the place where God is glorified. It's the place where God reigns and is experienced. And even though we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit to next week, I won't steal thunder for next week. Verse 9, at the very end of verse 9, an angel says to John, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he explains about this new Jerusalem. So it's curious to see that when we think of the new Jerusalem, it's not a place for God's people, but it's people for a place. Do you see that here? The place is the new heaven and earth, and the people, the new Jerusalem, is the bride of the Lamb. That's what the angel is describing here. It's a, it's a people for a new place that God is creating. Now, I wonder for a minute, since we're talking about the church, is that something that just fills you with great joy and appreciation? Do you embrace being considered the church? Is that good for you? Or is it just one of pain and avoidance, like, nah, I've been hurt? I mean, certainly our culture has no appetite for the church, no appetite for or tolerance for, for the church today. And sometimes that's for good reason, because of our testimony. You don't have to uh, say much to me um, to, to convince me of the warts of the church. I see it firsthand. I live it. I counsel through it. I have sadly at times been a um, evidence of the flaws and failures. And yes, we are messy. And yes, we are inconsistent. But despite this, do you know that you are permanently bound to the church? You can't separate yourself. In our consumer society today, we say, well, I can pick yes or no to church. Am I part of one? Am I not? Scripture says if you're in Christ, you are the church. And to be honest, you wouldn't want to be separate from her. Do you remember Revelation 20? What happens to those who are not in God's family? Bad news. You don't want to be there. 
even though we are messy, even though we're not perfect, the truth is Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's Ephesians 5.25. And so he loves her, and that's the resounding message in this Revelation 22 passage, is the groom loves the bride. There is no unloveliness or ugliness or, boy, I wish the church were different on this day. He's describing the church as she should be. What bride rolls out of bed the morning of her ceremony moments before and her hair's all askew and there's crusties in her eyes and she just shows up in her pajama bottoms and tank top to stand next to her groom, right? It does not happen, at least not the, the weddings I officiate. It doesn't happen that way. No, there's so much preparation in the months and the weeks and the days and the hours before it. And John is describing a bride who is prepared for the groom. She has made herself ready. Oh, church, that we would embrace this vision of how Jesus sees his bride and that we would spend these days being ready, prepared for this wedding day. John continues, and he wants us to hear, more sensory language here, hear about our new home, and there's this announcement in verse 3. He hears a loud voice, and it's talking about God's dwelling place, and this new home he's describing is characterized by God's nearness. It is a... It is a a new dwelling place, this angel announces. And so where has God been dwelling? You ever think about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Old Testament, again, has so much to say. Revelation is so connected to Old Testament prophecy. So listen, first it's good to recognize God is spirit. So that means he is in all places at all times. Not like me. I'm standing here on stage right now, not anywhere else. That's not so with God. He is in all places. But there have been some specific places where his presence is particularly manifested. Look in the uh, Old Testament um, where you have God's people gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses is receiving the law and the covenant from God and he's relaying that to the people. And in Exodus 33, 14, God is saying, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So he's giving an indication about his presence and this provision that he's giving Israel and a promise. So my presence will go with you. And so God then is giving all these instructions about the tabernacle that they're to build and how it's supposed to be because that's going to be where, where his, he, he's going to reside and dwell with his people in their wilderness wandering. And Exodus 40 talks about his glory settling there. Remember, there's the cloud and there's the, the fire by night. And so it says, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. So when the cloud goes up, the people are like, let's go, let's roll, let's go. It's time to move. And they do that. They follow the cloud until God says, this is the place. And so they set up and then his presence is there again. Fast forward and eventually King Solomon constructs a temple. That's the permanent place in Jerusalem where God's presence will dwell. In 2 Chronicles 7, we see the glory of God descending there, and there's this um, sacred space in there, much like there was the tabernacle. Do you remember what it's called? The Holy of Holies? Yeah, the Holy of Holies, and, and only certain people can go in at certain times, and, 
and have access to God's presence? God's presence in Revelation 21 is not confined to a small room called the Holy of Holies. What John is describing for us joyfully is that the entire place, every square inch in eternity of this new thing that God is doing is the dwelling place of God. This is the new Holy of Holies, which is amazing. Yes, yay. Yes, it is. One more picture of God's presence. Do you remember the coming of Jesus? How did the Apostle John in his gospel describe it? John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, you can actually read that instead as Jesus became human and tabernacled among us. It's the same concept. Jesus came and he made his tabernacle as a human being here. And so you see this progression, this movement of God's presence through the scriptures, right? From the temple tabernacle to, to uh, then Jesus physically being here, the manifest presence of God in Jesus, the Son of God, to then Jesus is back in heaven, but he gives us his spirit who indwells us as the church, and that's where we are today, to then this vision, Revelation 21, of all times, all places, no separation between God and his people. So, all of this detail is very important because a truer and a better picture of heaven is more than the place that I go someday to do all the things that I love to do now and I'm not going to have to deal with weeds in the garden. I can just garden with joy. It's so much more than that. Do you know that? Do you know that? It's fulfillment. It's contentment. It's God's presence as the reality, the power, the gift, the joy. This is what we're in it for, is to be with God and to be his people. The whole aim of the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, and the church will finally be realized because we're in his presence forever. Amen? So let us then, let us be the most hope-filled people who ever walked the face of the earth. We are his people. And he has chosen to rescue us. He's restored us. Let's not forget this, right? We're not so great. We didn't earn it. It's all grace. And he calls us to be his people. He invites us into his story, which he's still writing, and he wants us to participate in while there's still time. He wants us to experience it. And look at, look at how life in the kingdom is described in verse 4. No crying, no pain. All these former things will be passed away. This is what life will be like with him forever. What a vision. All the best things that any human has ever wished for is found in this place. <sighs> what a beautiful sigh of relief and a good God. Because remember, who is he writing this to? Churches that were suffering and struggling. They're trying to hold on and be faithful when it's not easy. They're suffering because of their sacrifice, and sometimes they're just rebelling against love for Jesus, and he's calling them back to it. He says, don't assimilate to the culture. Stand firm. Press on. God wants us to pay attention. Behold, again, behold, verse 5, behold, I'm making all things new. Pay attention. Don't be lulled. Don't be lulled to sleep. Hold on in your faith despite what you're facing. 
just like the saints of old ahead of us. Do you remember Hebrews 11? What's it say about Hebrews 11, those saints? They were looking for a city with eternal foundations, a city designed by God, a better place, a heavenly homeland. You feel that longing? You feel that longing in your life? John continues here with a call to receive the promised word. He says, write this down. This is what what Jesus is saying. Write this down, John. These words are trustworthy and true, and thankfully they were written down, and thankfully they've been preserved for us. The time is near. The time is near. We really have no idea how long we have until this plays itself out. And so, because of that, the call, again, I talked about the decision that people are faced with. There's a, there's a, a choice that is to be made, an alignment, one way or the other, Jesus or world, right? The call is to receive Jesus, the word of God in flesh, the one called faithful and true, the one who has conquered. He completed his sacrificial work on the cross, and he said, it is finished, and what's he say here? It is done. It is done. So he is finally bringing all these things to conclusion, to completion. And look at this beautiful thing he says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Not only is he the completer, the consummator, but he is a provider. He still provides an opportunity who hear this to receive a drink that satisfies their soul. He is that gentle shepherd who guides people to life-giving water and says, take a drink. Anyone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness may be satisfied. Have you experienced this? Deep satisfaction, salvation. Have you experienced this? If you have, are you finding satisfaction in what God says is available to you? John ends here with seven and eight really talk about two different types of people, conquerors and cowards. And he's contrasting them. The conquerors are those who have tasted and drunk and have been satisfied, right? They're the ones who have, throughout the book of Revelation, they've stood firm. In the face of opposition, they've stood firm. They've set their hope on Jesus. They've loved him. They've honored him. Chapter 12 talks about that they have overcome by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And so they share in God's victory, his inheritance. He calls him at the end of seven, he will be my son. And that is the fulfillment of the covenant between God and man. We are his people, we are his family, his children. But it's contrasted in verse 8 against those who are cowards. And he lists this summary of the depravity of sin and unbelief. And the fact that this is included here, when we've already seen evil done away with in, in uh, chapter 20, the fact that it's included here serves as a warning of what is to come for those who live opposed to the way of God. It is a sobering Reality, but a call to faithfulness and a call to salvation before John concludes. So, church, we could spend like three weeks just in Revelation 21. There's so much in here. 
And God has provided so much for you and me in our salvation. And there's so much more to come. So much more. See how he's making all things new. Pay attention. Behold. Tune your heart to it. Everything that we experience from that Disney ride to the joy and people and blessings and provision in our life is a shadow, a shadow of what is to come. And it's meant for us to turn our affection and our attention to the one who is worthy. Do you know, church, that the Bible describes the church as those who are saved by Jesus and for Jesus? And in a couple places it says that we are a people for his own possession. And so, since we belong to him, he sets the expectation. He sets the standard, which, to be honest, usually butts up against our version of life, right? What we, what we want, what we feel like. He calls us to a very different life than the world's version of a good life. Don't forget, Jesus himself was tempted. The devil met him at a, point, at a place in the wilderness when Jesus was at a, a low point physically. I mean, he'd been out there for like 40 days, and the devil met him and tempted him to give in. The churches in Revelation were already giving in. They were assimilating to the world and the culture in which they lived, and the temptation for us to assimilate with our world is no less strong. And so the enemy knows how to play this game. And you follow the enemy's lies, and it's a bill of goods that he's selling us, not the actual thing especially in the suburbs. We can have whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, for whatever reason we want, right? We got to keep up with the neighbors. We got to present a certain image. We just want something that makes us feel better. We're so enamored by what we can do, what we can get, what we can experience. I think sometimes, at least for me, Revelation 21 was like a way to like, hey, wake up, lift your eyes. Whose kingdom are you living for? What is all this about? When you look in Revelation 21, where's all the stuff that people accumulate? Talk, talk to me, where is it? It's not there. It's not there. That's not to say that God doesn't give us blessings in life and tangible things. But whose kingdom are you living for? Because this vision, I wonder, is this vision of Revelation 21 more compelling than the vision of life that you're currently living and believing? What Jesus calls us into is and will be infinitely better, so much better than we can imagine. It doesn't fade, it doesn't get worn out, it doesn't get boring. The world offers things that are lacking. And so does your heart long for the vision that John is holding up, that he wants us to see, to make the most of our days? Are you living your life in a way that, that says it's the prayer, God, may your will be done on earth in my life where I have influence. Be done in, on earth as it is in heaven. We know God's will is being done in heaven. Are you inviting God to, to use your life, your influence, your story to align with his is that what your life is reflecting? What's your vision of God and what he's asked you to do in this time and place? 
Oh, church, God, help us to have a vision like this and to be motivated for his glory because it is coming someday, this beautiful reality. He is making all things new. So, Father, we thank you for the truth that is in these pages and what it means for us who are in Christ. If we're not in Christ today, then God, by your spirit, would you convict and call some people into your family and into your beautiful story of renewal? Would you set them free from the bondage of sin? Would you wake them up to new life in Christ? Would you help us to be part of that in our daily life, more than this room, to not keep separate some things in our life from you, but God, all of our life is worshiped to you, and so help us in that. We love you, we worship you, we lift up our voice now to sing for King Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.